0: Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. And several years ago, Newt Gingrich created a bit of controversy when he said in an interview that feelings are facts and the way people perceive an issue has just as much to say about its reality as any set of statistics that you could gather objectively. Many people scoffed or reacted with outrage. Wasn't the whole notion of science? based on some sort of objective, measurable reality that we could all share? And how could you equate people's internal subjective reality with that? Now, Gingrich was talking about politics. He even said that as a politician, he just needs to go with whatever people are feeling, regardless of what objective measurements might say. And he's right. People aren't exactly rational. But He may also have been saying more than he intended, because there is a strange middle ground between people's amorphous feelings and measurable statistics. It's something that economists are very familiar with. The way people feel about the economy has a strong influence on the objective reality of the economy and the kinds of statistics that we can measure. In fact, economists generally accept the idea that people's feelings and expectations about inflation become self-fulfilling prophecies that manifest in actual real inflation. That's why if you listen closely to our nation's economic leaders like Fed Chair Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, you'll hear them talk about consumer confidence, which is defined as the way people feel about the strength of the economy now and in the future. The leading institution that measures people's feelings about the economy in America is the University of Michigan Survey of Consumers and their director, Dr. Joanne Shu is here with us to tell us what it means, why it's important, and why we need to be paying extra close attention to it right now. Dr. Shu, welcome to Beyond Politics.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. This is one of those great confluences between economics and politics and actually I am going to go ahead and supply my own suggested answer to that last little bit that I said there because I mean look, we've featured a lot of wonderful economists on this show. We're primarily about politics and current events, but I do think the connection should be pretty clear to people right now. I mean, it's clear that the number one issue on everyone's minds is and has been inflation and the general state of the economy, and that's going to have probably more to do than any other factor with what happens in the next set of elections than anything. So that's why I think this is an ultra important topic. But I want to ask you about the basic connection that I was suggesting a moment ago between people's feelings and the other kinds of measurable statistics we're used to hearing from economists like the unemployment rate and the the gross domestic product, the GDP. What is that connection? Did I get that kind of close to right? I mean, why is it so important to do what you do and measure consumer sentiment?
1: So, consumer sentiment has been measured here at the university of michigan since the 1940s so we have a lot of data and we've been measuring sentiment inflation inflation expectations and expectations over various parts of the economy in very much the same way in a comparable way over the 75 plus year period and what we've seen over this long time series is that how people feel about the economy including their expectations for the future very much anticipates actual changes in the economy when we ask consumers what they think the unemployment will be, unemployment rate will be in the future, what we see is that that actually very much anticipates future changes in, in unemployment. Same thing with inflation and what we have seen historically, is that massive declines in consumer sentiment tend to precede economic contractions. Now, it's not going to be a full-on one-to-one cause and effect because policymakers and, and, and business leaders are looking at our data, knowing that it anticipates future behavior and making constructing their own responses to that. So there's an entire equilibrium around this. But what we have seen is that consumer sentiment, consumer expectations, really has an impact on how consumers behave. And they do actually, on aggregate, do a really good job anticipating changes in the future.
0: So there really is that very strong connection there between what people tell you in their surveys about how they feel and what they expect to happen, and then what actually happens. And just as a quick sidebar, because I want to get into the actual mechanics of how you do this, As we record this just last week on Friday, the chairman of the Fed, Jerome Powell, was addressing a conference and he made it very clear that the Fed, it was, I think, a move to establish credibility here that the Fed was going to go to the mat to crush inflation and the stock market fell rather notably on that news. It seems like he was reacting very much to the kinds of measures that you provide. I'm not... Blaming you personally for tanking the market or anything, but don't call your broker and like, what, how do I get a hold of Dr. Hsu? But it does seem like you're providing really, really important inputs that our nation's policymakers are watching.
1: Our, our survey's emphasis on consumer expectations, on what they expect for the future is very much in line with the way that monetary policy is being communicated these days. As you said, Chair Powell's speech on Friday very much was trying to address future expectations. If, if there were expectations um, what he's trying to address is to is people's expectations for inflation in the future, that the Fed isn't ready to stop now, that the Fed is committed to doing what it takes to reduce inflation down the line. We know that, as you mentioned in your introduction, that inflation expectations can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I and mean, there are a few ways that this can happen. One of the ways is that it... Uh, leads people to demand higher wages, those Hmm. higher wages then lead firms to raise their prices because they think the market will bear those higher prices and that then, then begins a spiral. Another way it can happen is that consumers may believe higher prices are are coming in the future and they better start buying large things now and that pushes demand in a way that also promotes inflation and so those are two examples of ways that inflation expectations can become a self-fulfilling prophecy and that's why it's so important for policymakers trying to address this to rein in these expectations to to lower the pressure on inflation
0: it's really such a strange psychology game and actually the founder of your survey was both an economist And a psychologist which is which is terrific i mean it it kind of goes to show the foundations of what's happening here so just to make sure that we we kind of lay out that mechanism because this is inflation is what is on people's minds so the feeling that inflation is going to continue into the future and therefore you've got to earn more money if at all possible to to be able to afford those higher prices that's one way that you can actually, your feelings translate into real world inflation because you go to your employer and you say, hey, I need a lot more money. And they go ahead and say, all right, Dr. Hsu, we, we need you. We can't do the survey without you. And then they turn around and they say, well, now we've got to charge. Well, they don't charge people for what you do, but we've got to charge people more for our products and boom, you have inflation. The other thing you were saying is, well, I better buy that refrigerator now because it's going to cost a lot more next year and again and so on the policymaker side it turns into you've got to show that no we're we're going to rule with an iron fist here we're going to absolutely crush inflation and you see it described in the press this way that it's largely about consumer psychology and credibility and showing that you're really going to follow through like for example when the fed is raising interest rates it's just it's a very interesting interplay of psychology and communications seems far afield from the world of economics that we're familiar with thinking about when it comes to numbers and measurables and data. And it's really not. They're, they're deeply intertwined.
1: I mean, I would say it's more than just feelings alone. It's, it's it, I think when we talk about how these, these expectations are measured, it feels squishy. It feels like feelings, but it's not just feelings. It's It's the type of information you're using, consumers are using to plan for the future. And so in that sense, it's not really squishy at all. It's you, the way you approach your buying habits, the way you approach talking about wages for for your job are all based on what you think is coming down the pike in the future. And in a way, bringing it back to feelings though, the self-fulfilling prophecy is kind of coming from in a way, a fear of missing out, a fear of missing out on current levels of prices because you've waited too long to ask for that rage or look Ask for that weight raise or look for a new job or, or buy that refrigerator before it doubles in price or, or something like that. And I would say that all of these things are perfectly rational for consumers to do. It protects their pocketbook. If they, if that's what they truly believe, it makes sense to protect your budget by buying when you think things are cheaper than they might be in the future. We talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy or economists talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I do want to be clear. In my opinion, it's not that the consumers are to blame for this. I think they are doing, if, if they expect inflation to be stronger in the future, higher in the future, is perfectly rational to to bring their spending to now or to negotiate higher wages. These are all individually reasonable, rational things to do given, given those beliefs.
0: What was amazing about what you just said is that I think that you, one of the leading economists in America, overseeing one of the most important measures of our economy in America, you just gave a rational scientific basis that FOMO is a thing, that really people care a lot about missing out on stuff. How does your survey work? What do you do?
1: We interview 600 Americans every month and it's a nationally representative survey. Sometimes I see on Twitter some misconceptions that it's 600 university students. It is not 600 <laughs> university students. We cap respondents of all age groups, of all education levels, all levels of income and, and different levels and different political party affiliations as well. We make sure that we're, we're capturing a snapshot, a broad snapshot of the, of the American people every month. And that's the way we're able to take a pulse. Like we We have telephone interviewers just asking about 50 questions of each respondent, covering a wide variety of questions about their economic circumstances, their feelings around the economy and their expectations about the economy. Not all 50 questions feed into the main headline numbers you see. The the, the key measures, the consumer sentiment index is actually based on five questions. But again, we we collect a a wealth of information outside of that as well.
0: I think that's one of the major advantages. We were talking about this a little bit off the air of your survey is that it does have this simplicity and it has so much continuity with the way you you frame your core questions. And that allows for very meaningful comparisons over time and perhaps a a little bit less of the the kinds of effects that we're familiar with from public opinion work that happens in more of the political realm where the, the order of questions and the wording of questions Can have such a profound effect on the kinds of answers that you see. I do want to ask you kind of a quick technical question. Speaking of polling that's done in the political realm. There's been so much discussion in the last five or six years about some of the challenges that pollsters have encountered, because there are differences in the way you can reach people these days. And there are questions about whether you're truly getting a representative sample and are pollsters getting the right sorts of people. Are you encountering those kinds of challenges in your work?
1: I think anyone in the world of polling and surveys is encountering challenges. And, and I don't think that's really any anything new. One of the benefits of being at the University of Michigan is that we're part of the oldest and largest and most established survey research centers in, in the world. So there is a wealth of scientific knowledge about how to construct surveys, how, how, how to do them, how to design them. And we draw upon uh, on that wealth of research. One thing that we've changed over the years is we used to do all our surveys via landlines. We discovered that it was harder harder to get a truly representative sample. You can imagine that younger people in in recent years uh, did not have, don't have landlines. And we've, and we've responded to that by, by changing our sample to a cell phone sample. And that has enabled us to kind of move and modernize with the era. And as things change, we will continue to modernize and we're constantly monitoring what our sample looks like. Is it representative? I mean, we we monitor this over the course of a month and, uh, and we're really committed to putting out something that's scientifically valid and meaningful.
0: I imagine that you don't have quite the same set of challenges that you get with other polling outfits that are doing political polling where the, the topics can be so much more charged. The only issue you have to deal with is when you reach Ohio State fans. One more <laughs> on, on just sort of the mechanics of of your work. Mm-hmm. What Could you give us a sense of what those core questions are like, The the, the kinds that you've consistently asked over time?
1: So as an example, the index of consumer sentiment is five questions. It covers three domains, your personal finances, your business conditions, as well as buying conditions for durables. And we ask those questions both about the present condition, as well as your expectations into the future. So it's kind of getting at different domains of the economy. It's not intended to be comprehensive, but what we have found in our research is that those five questions are g- give us enough of a snapshot to have a meaningful measure of how consumers feel about the economy. And then our other headline numbers, the one, that are watched most closely by policymakers, I would say, are are our inflation expectations questions, where we ask people what they think will happen to prices over the next 12 months. And and the one that's cited a lot by policymakers is our long-term expectations number. What do you think will happen to prices over the next five to 10? I'm not... I'm not reading the questions out loud to you. All of those are, the exact wording of those questions have been scientifically tested and are on our website. And, but yeah, those seven questions I would say are the seven that are most closely watched and have been asked continuously since the beginning.
0: Well, and the proof of the pudding really is in the eating in the case of your survey, because as you said a few minutes ago, it has proved over time to be so well correlated with what we then see in the real world. It's a great demonstration of the fact that Whatever question wording you've you've managed to maintain over time does seem to be capturing something very meaningful. So if people were to go on Google and, and look up the, the survey of consumers, the University of Michigan and, and arrive on your website, th- they would see a bunch of numbers that right now are floating at 58.2 is the index of consumer sentiment, and a year ago it was 70.3. What do those numbers mean?
1: So one thing to keep in mind when looking at our numbers is that it is an index and it's calibrated to a hundred in the mid sixties, and so I, I wouldn't we we don't have really a clear interpretation of. 55 versus 56. What is a neutral level of sentiment? That's not really something that that we can say. Everything, our numbers are all kind of calibrated to be compared over time. What I can tell you is when we're looking at these numbers right now, is that historically speaking, in a historical context, they are very, very low. We hit our his all-time historic low since the beginning of the survey in, in June, actually. And what the most recent data have shown has been some improvement in July and in August and uh, and but in spite of that improvement historically speaking sentiment remains very
0: very low. So when people are looking at this just to make sure i i followed that right back in the 1960s you when you were when you were kind of calibrating this index you did it such that 100 would be about the the baseline that you would yeah. measure against if you were above that that kind of good if you were below that not so good and so it's no longer meaningful to say a hundred means X 50 means y it's a lot more meaningful to do what you just did and, and compare over time where are we now where were we then and where are we going that said so and and just again just for for folks and look a lot of people listen to us on broadcast radio if you're doing that and maybe you're in your car don't do this right now you it can wait until you until <laughs> you pull over and maybe you're at a desktop or you're you're not driving but for people who are on video or listening to us on pod and able to check this out. So you see the index of consumer sentiment. You see the current economic conditions and the index of consumer expectations. Are you suggesting that the the one that's most closely watched that maybe they should pay attention to is that first one, the index of consumer sentiment? Or what what are the differences among those three?
1: So the index of consumer sentiment is the main index and current conditions and economic expectations are two sub indices of of that of that index and, and so, so with the five questions i mentioned in the mi- main index three go into current conditions two go into go go into economic expectations and and consumer expectations i would say is the one that probably historically has the most predictive power it's it's looking at the it's it's looking at what people expect for the future of the economy and what what we have seen is that consumers do a remarkable job anticipating changes. Now, like I said, it is is not a direct cause and effect type situation because we have business leaders, policymakers, politicians all responding to the same types of factors that consumers are. So things can change, especially if there's policies being put into place to buffer against downturns. But but by and large, consumers tend to have their finger on the pulse.
0: Now, perceptive listeners and viewers may have noticed a moment ago that we kind of begged the question there when Dr. Shu mentioned that we hit the lowest measure ever in the history of the index. Now, just to put this in context, you've been doing this since 1946? Yes. And so let's this is lower than the recession in 1981. Lower than the great recession in 2008-2009. And in in June of this year we hit this absolute nadir why
1: so i do want to put it into context this isn't much lower than those other nadirs that that you mentioned it's pretty comparable but at the same time it's really eye opening right given the fact that by, by and large we are in a completely different situation than the great recession than the recession in the 1980s or any other recession that we've seen in the past we have historically low unemployment. We have strong income growth and we're coming out of of a lot of pandemic economic restrictions. But by and large, what consumers are telling us is that they are in a world of pain because of inflation. And, And that's what they are telling us spontaneously throughout the survey. They're, 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 I wouldn't say randomly, but they are raising inflation over the course of the survey to our interviewers, even when the interviewers aren't asking about it. So it yeah. really tells us how much inflation is on people's minds. And, and so I think to someone who's looking at the chart, it can be confusing about why is it that sentiment is so low in spite of the fact that labor markets are strong, incomes are strong. Yeah. In, in many ways, there's a fair amount of you know, the economy is chugging along. And what I generally kind of point at is that we are in truly unprecedented times. We weren't collecting sentiment during the 1917-1918 Spanish flu, but who who knows what it would have looked like if we were collecting it at that time. And so we're coming out of a lengthy pandemic in which we had restrictions on our lives that none of us had any experience with until this time. On on top of that, we have a lot of global turmoil and uncertainty, particularly with with the war in Ukraine. And and in addition, we have all of these supply chain problems. And of course, these things are all kind of interconnected, particularly the supply chain with with the pandemic. But we have this confluence of factors that we've never really seen before. And and then add to that inflation. Inflation alone is always enough to make people feel in pain uh, about their finances, but I think adding together all these other factors that create anxiety, that can cause people to have negative feelings about their reality, and and I guess also with the political polarization that we see as well, that we also haven't seen coupled with these other factors. So in fact, we have at least four extenuating factors all happening at the same time that we've generally only seen one at a time in in the past.
0: There's so uh, that's it's such a fascinating answer that you just ran through there. There's so many threads that we we could pull on. I mean, one that immediately leaps to mind is the connection to the politics of it all and and the polarization. I do want to return to that theme. I just will point out that for people who want to look around on your website, which I urge people to do, it's super fascinating. There's a lot of great material on there. You put out a, an interesting report back in 2016 in October that showed the link between people's expectations of who is going to win the election, by the way, their expectations were wrong. A lot of people's expectations were wrong that year. And their their sense of how they would fare and how the economy would fare. And if they supported that candidate, they tended to think that things would turn better. And if they didn't, then they tended to think things would turn worse. So I guess it does make some sense to me that the way people think about the economic news and their political positioning would would factor in here. The other thing that I think comes through really clearly in, in what you just said and I, I think is really interesting is the Wall Street Journal recently profiled your consumer sentiment index along with a different but a very similar measure from the Conference Board called the consumer confidence index. They sound you you guys have a branding mismatch. You got to you, you got to change something somewhere. So now their index, the conference board's one, is more tied to how people feel about their jobs, and yours is more tied to how well off people feel. And I would like to editorialize for a second that you guys are onto something here, because while the two measures, if you look over time, you look at a chart, they really track each other pretty well. When we're in an economy like this, what you see is that yours is more sensitive to those feelings about people's wealth and, 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 and spending power and that reflects their actual feelings about the economy so it seems like it seems like in the tussle between do people care about jobs, or do people care about prices. We've now pretty convincingly shown and I think your work has shown that prices trumps jobs every time that that's that's the biggest factor right.
1: I mean, I think it is something, prices is something people face every time they need to buy something. Every, every time they are going, they're going to the pump to pump gas or anytime they're, they're getting more groceries or every time they're on Amazon, you, you see the impact of prices all of the time. And with something like jobs and, and the labor market, if you are unemployed, certainly that is something that, that you are facing every single day. But if you have a job, and particularly if you have a stable job, then how the labor market is doing may not affect you individually that much directly. Now, it, of course, intersects with, with, with prices. One of the things, one of the five questions that, that we ask is, uh, or one of the 50 questions we ask is about people's incomes. And we ask people if they think their incomes are going to rise over the next year or, or, or fall and by how much. And we also ask if they think there's, those incomes are going to rise faster than prices, faster than, than inflation. And if, if their incomes are outstripped by income gains are outstripped by inflation, that means their real purchasing power, their living standards are declining. And so even when you have strong labor markets and you have strong incomes, people, every time they see a price going up, they're seeing their incomes getting eroded, even if those incomes are objectively Mm. speaking quite strong. So I think in this environment, prices are just so salient. And, and especially in this environment where we have inflation across a whole suite of goods, it's not just gas, that every time you're buying something, it is it, it is something you're going to be, you are going to see. And, and then of course, there's also the news coverage where there's just been such tremendous news coverage mm. of price changes and inflation. And a lot more people mention, when we ask people, what kind of developments have you heard about in the economy? Far more people mention inflation than they do the strong labor market and and even when they mention the strong labor market it's often in the context of like well businesses can't hire and 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 so for for our consumers, it looks like they're hearing a lot more talking a lot more about prices than they are about jobs
0: well, I think for Democrats especially who have been feeling in the last six months like, hey wait a second we have really tremendous job growth. And last month, we saw the, a 50-year low in the unemployment rate, 3.46%. And you put those together and kind of the old kind of saw in politics is it's all about jobs, 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 jobs. I think Democrats have just had to get used to the fact that not really. Prices are far more important in determining how people feel about the economy. And just to kind of spike that particular football, as we're talking, I'm scrolling through your index of consumer sentiment and the monthly figures going back since the beginning of your survey. What is the other low point that's even close that's that's like within a hair's breadth of where we were in June and July? 1980, middle of 1980, the last time we saw high infl- uh, high inflation, that stagflation period of, of 1980. It does seem like that is, Sort of the, the the major factor here, but that being said, you said something really interesting a moment ago, and I I want to grab a hold of it because it relates to perhaps the single best politics chart I've seen in memory, and I'm going to put it up along with this show. I'll probably make it the cover art for this show, and it's a chart that's not really about politics. It's w- what you do is you measure consumer sentiment versus the news heard about business conditions, and whether it's favorable or unfavorable. And you show this remarkable correlation and pattern there. And I, I, I asked you to send me this chart right before we got on the air, because it just it just grabbed my attention the first time I saw it so much. So what stands out to you about that chart, and about that relationship, that finding that you're, that you're demonstrating there?
1: So this, this chart in a way, I think that the strong correlation between cons- consumer sentiment and news heard should, should not be a surprise to anyone. And I, I, I wouldn't read this as a causal story where, where people hear bad news and, then they think, and their sentiment goes down. People with low levels of sentiment who are really worried about inflation are probably going to seek out more news about inflation. But what I think is really interesting about this chart is how low the news measure is now in spite of the strong, the the strength in the labor market and continued economic growth and and all the other strong indicators in the economy. The news people report hearing about the economy is so low. It is barely higher than it, it was at the worst of the pandemic and not a whole lot better than it was in the worst of the great recession either. So when we talk about why are consumers so dismal and why do they feel so bad about the economy? Well, what they're hearing sounds pretty bad too. And, and so I, I, so that, that's what kind of jumps out at me. That to, to me, what seemingly is a puzzle, why do consumers feel so gloomy in spite of strong incomes? It's like, well, the news that they are surrounding themselves with or being surrounded with is, is really gloomy as well.
0: Mm. Well, I mean... Obviously, there is a little bit of a sort of a daisy chain argument that we're making here. We've we've connected, I think, very clearly the real economy, the real performance of the economy to people's sentiment about the economy. That's sort of the first part of the show. And I think what this chart does is it suggests a very strong correlation at the very least between kind of your general news environment and that sentiment. So there's the link, general news environment, economy and there's there's clearly a a strong connection that the way the media presents the news and the conditions can manifest in real world effects in the economy and just in a purely politics context I will say that there's been a lot of discussion among political operatives about the value of paid media the kind of ads that we see on tv mostly this time of year and earned media and how how much do each matter in in electoral prospects and again notwithstanding you you raise some important caveats here we can't we can't mistake correlation for causation but there's definitely a strong suggestion in what you're showing here that earned media matters a lot and to the extent that people what people are telling political pollsters now about how they're feeling probably has something to do with the string of relatively good news that the media has been reporting recently okay With that said, I want to get into a section of discussion that is going to call for a little bit of social science speculation on your part. Not entirely fair, but I I want to avail ourselves of your expertise. And what strikes me is that the largest political group in this country isn't really Republicans or Democrats, but the dejected. People are not happy in America. Just separate from their specific feelings that you measure in consumer sentiment. Over the last 50 years, that Gallup has asked Americans their version of the are things on the right track or wrong track question, the median number of or, or proportion of Americans who say things are on the wrong track is about two thirds of us, about 66%. In the last 10 years, that number is 71% who say, Things are seriously off on the wrong track. And if you look at other measures, like the World Happiness Report, in the last 10 years, we've dropped behind eight more countries. We see social indicators like depression, the suicide rate, drug use, diseases of despair, all sharply on the rise. And finally, when you go into the general social survey, it shows an all-time low in people saying that they were very happy, 14%. And at the same time, and this is the connection back to your work, Dr. Shu, an all-time high in people saying that they are satisfied with their family's financial situation. 80% said, I'm pretty happy with my own family circumstances in terms of our wealth and, and prospects. What do you make of that very, very strange mix of what people are saying about how they feel?
1: So this is something that my, my survey can't directly speak to, but we what we do see is a some evidence that that people don't always feel the same way about themselves as they do about their surroundings. And and that's why in our consumer sentiment index, we ask not just about the economy as a whole, we ask people about their about how about their personal finances so what's close to them as well as kind of the 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 macro situation what's kind of interesting right now is that even in spite of strong incomes maybe in spite of of what what we're seeing on the gss that our current personal finances question is still quite low historically speaking and we know the reason for that it's inflation because we ask people what what Tell us about the positive and negative factors affecting your personal finances, your current personal finances. And by and large, everybody is mentioning inflation. Almost half of the people spontaneously mention it. And that's, that's, we, we've never seen anything that high, e- even during the inflationary period in, in the late seventies and early eighties. And, and so I, th- I think that, but the patterns that you have mentioned predate this current inflationary period, right? Like it, they, it started much earlier than that and, and perhaps coinciding with the increase in political polarization that, that occurred over the last several administrations. I will say we don't necessarily see that in the overall sentiment measures in, in our survey. But we do see growing partisan divides in sentiment starting, um, starting in the mid-2000s. To, to be clear, we didn't consistently measure political affiliation until 2017. We just kind of occasionally measured it. But when we look at those snapshots, like those once every few years, one, once in administration snapshots, the, the the gap between self-identified Democrats and Republicans has just grown um, qu- quite a bit, and uh, it's growing over the same period where where these deaths of despair are are increasing, and and kind of these these other measures that you you've brought up are also kind of becoming more and more negative. But again, that's not something that we see in terms of consumer sentiment about the economy. We haven't really we haven't seen that general trend until this inflationary period. Mm. So for us, it is pretty closely tied to inflation.
0: Well, so once again, the story kind of comes back to inflation. I, I want to sort of try to, I will absolutely not ask you to predict anything about where the numbers are going. Predictions are sort of a fool's errand, especially in economics. We prove that to ourselves over and over again, and yet we continue to ask ourselves to do them. But I'd love to get your sense of the kinds of indicators we should be paying attention to. Now, when I look at the consumer sentiment index. What I see is that in the first half of 2021, we're pretty consistently in the high 70s, even into the mid 80s cresting at 88.3 in April of 2021. And then we see this sudden drop between July and August of 2021. And that correlates with a whole bunch of bad news happening all at the same time, the not so smooth withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the promised July Fourth hot vax summer that never really materialized, and the sense that maybe we're going to declare an end to the pandemic. All of a sudden, the news environment turns down, people's sentiment turns down, and it's never really recovered since. But as you alluded to a few minutes ago, we have seen a little bit of a recovery and an uptick in August. What are you going to be paying attention to in kind of the external environment that is going to give you some clues and breadcrumbs about where consumer sentiment may be heading? Is it all inflation or anything else that you kind of keep bringing across your transom to, to get a sense of where things are going?
1: So, of course, we are monitoring inflation very closely and not just the headline inflation numbers, but also both core and non-core inflation, gas and food and, and outside of gas and food. And it's too early to tell if the recent improvement we've seen can be sustained. Of course, I, I hope it can be sustained, but we we just have to wait wait and see. And part of the reason I believe that consumer spending has been fairly robust in spite of this low sentiment is the strong incomes, strong income expectations and the strong labor market. So looking forward, I am looking for any cracks in that labor market strength. Historically speaking, when recessions happen, they, uh, You know, for for example, when we look at the Great Recession, we there was inflation at that time. There was the subprime housing crisis, and there was a financial crisis. There were crises in more than in multiple sectors happening at the same time, and the economy went went into went into a severe downturn. Right now, we have inflation alone, and we don't have those other meltdowns. And but I do think like incomes are the thing to watch. And, and it's going to be a complicated thing to watch because if incomes grow less, I think that may be a sign that inflation is slowing, but unemployment going up is would be different. Unemployment going up w- would really be a strong signal that labor market strength is starting to weaken. And I think if that's what consumers foresee, that could really portend bad things in the future.
0: So if if you're looking for maybe signs that things are going in in a good direction and we're going to kind of walk the tightrope of we're going to bring down inflation, but we're not going to edge off into a recession. That's a whole other can of worms. Are we in a recession or not? You are looking for income growth to slow without rising unemployment along with the inflation numbers, both core, meaning the non-gas and food, the the volatile items and those gas and food. Numbers.
1: Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. Got it. Um, Got it. I, I think that if if prices can stay, we want to monitor and see if prices can re- can stabilize and, and preferably come down. And uh, all this talk about a soft landing with respect to monetary policy, where the the where where we're going to want to look for that is with jobs and uh, and and unemployment.
0: Final lightning round question for you. You obviously were an economist before you assumed this position overseeing this survey. Is there anything you've learned in the course of doing this incredibly important survey work that you wish you'd understood better beforehand and that you wish people in general understood better about how the economy works and how people's feelings factor in?
1: I think that's a great question. I, I think that, so I've been working on surveys for a very long time. I actually, I, my Ph.D. studies were in economics, but I also worked on surveys as a grad student, and in my previous position at the Federal Reserve, I also worked on surveys there. So I have long believed that if we want to know how Americans, how people make economic decisions, we should just ask them. And, And so I think the first thing I would say is if you get a phone call from interviews at the University of Michigan, I I would highly encourage you to pick up the phone and tell us how you feel. And those that information that people provide, the generosity of their time, there's nothing that can replace that. And I am just so grateful for all the people who are willing to to share their feelings with us and their their thoughts about the economy. So so that's first of all, have to give that plug. And, and, And second, I think that behind all the spreadsheets and tables that we look that we look at, and when we look at headline numbers, we look at these charts blipping up and down. There, there are human faces behind that, and that's actually part of the reason that I became an economist because I was interested in social science. I was interested in impact on, on, on. People. I was interested in how they make economic decisions, but at the end of the day, I wanted to know about their well-being, and and so I, I think that. It can be easy to forget when we see 3.5% unemployment rate or inflation expectations of 2.9%, that there are actual people behind that. And and there are many, many economic actors being aggregated when we look at the big numbers, but there, there are people behind that.
0: Dr. Joanne Shu, thank you so much for giving us all these really fascinating insights. Thank you so much for having me.